Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. I'm going I'm to read that and then I'll pray. <clears throat> now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, that is Jesus, why, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and the skin, the skins are destroyed also. But new wine is for fresh or new wineskins. Let's pray and see what God wants to teach us from that little passage and something else that we'll read after. Heavenly Father, we just ask for your help now, especially for me. I just ask that you would help me to be faithful to you in what I say and helpful to the people you've gathered here this morning. And help all of us who listen, help us to, to listen with good and attentive hearts, to consider carefully how we listen and how we hear, that your word might go into our hearts and bear good fruit for your kingdom. We ask that in Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Jesus mentions a wedding here, so I'll, I'll say this. I, I have the privilege tomorrow, tomorrow we'll be celebrating our seventh anniversary. Those of you who know my wife, Heather. So seven years, you know, and I know that's just a drop in the bucket. Yeah. I know that's just a drop in the bucket for some of you, but, but it's, it's long enough for me to realize what a gift she is and what a phenomenal woman God's given me for my wife. And um, I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't be more thrilled and I'm, I'm looking forward to the next seven years already. Uh, maybe some of you have heard this. <clears throat> I don't know if you've heard this story, but I came across it and I thought it would be helpful to you. There, there was this woman who was going through a, a, a grocery store checkout aisle and she, she had just a few items with her. So she put them up on the conveyor belt and very quickly another woman came up behind her and you know how this works, started putting all of her stuff on the conveyor belt as well. And, and so the first woman had no interest in paying for all of this woman's groceries. So she picked up one of those little dividers and, and put it in between the two sets of items. And so the, the guy at the checkout line there who was working the register starts picking up her items and, and he scans her few items, puts them in the bag, and then he, he proceeds to pick up the divider and he, he starts looking, looking at it intently, turns it around and <laughs> then he finally, it's like he just gives up and he, and he looks at her and he says, can I just can't find the barcode. Can, can, do you remember how much this costs? <laughs> the, woman who, the woman looked, looked at him and just uh, trying to keep a straight face, you understand, which is very difficult. But she said, you know, um, yeah, I changed my mind. Just, you know, I don't think I need that this week. Let's just put it back. <laughs> and so the, the guy looks at her and says, okay, all right, you're sure? And she said, yeah, I'm pretty sure. And he says, okay, no problem, ma'am. He gives her her bags, gives her her receipt. She leaves. And he had no clue what just happened. And I say that this morning to say, 
Sometimes it's interesting, isn't it? it the, the people you would expect to know the most about something are the ones who appear to have no clue. It, it was like that in, in Jesus' day. You, you'll, you'll get the sense of this. He, if anyone should have recognized and, and should have been able to distinguish groceries from a divider, it would be the checkout guy. Well, if, if anyone should have been able to recognize the truth of God's word from man-made religion and traditions, it should have been the Jew of Jesus' day. I mean, how is it that this grocery guy can't distinguish between those two things? And, and look, how is it that the people of God are unable to distinguish between the truth of God's word and man-made religion? And I wish I could say that such a problem was confined to Jesus' day, but, but let's flip forward here to 2013. Don't we have essentially the same issue? Are we not content at times to outsource a first-hand relationship and knowledge with God to the so-called professionals while the rest of us just kind of trust that the traditions handed to us are right? Now, see, that's not how Jesus wanted us to order our lives at all. And so it's important for us to always go back to the Word of God itself. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to read, beginning again, with what we, we just read in chapter 2 of Mark, verses 18 through 22. And then later on, as we explain, or after we explain a few things, we'll go into the rest of what we have to look at this morning, all the way up to chapter 3, verse 6. So let's go back up to Mark chapter 2, verse 18. Let me point out a few things before we move on. There's, there are some people here, unidentified people. We don't know exactly who they are in verse 18, but they come up to Jesus and they have an issue. They notice that Jesus and his disciples are a little bit different from what they're accustomed to seeing out there in the day concerning the religious landscape, right? They've got a picture of what religion is supposed to look like, just as we do today, right? You know what to expect on a Sunday. You know what to expect in a religious atmosphere. Well, these people are looking, and, and it must have been Monday or Thursday, and I, and I know that because those were the two days of the week where the Pharisees would fast, so it had to be one of those two days. And so they, they come and they notice, now Jesus, the disciples of the Pharisees and John's disciples are fasting, but, but you're, you're, you're folks, you're, you're eating. Now, we're not told exactly how they came to know that those other guys were fasting, but I imagine it's something like what we do. When we're fasting and we want credit for it, what do we do? Oh, I'm so hungry, right? <laughs> probably show up while everyone's eating lunch and talk about how we're fasting. That's how this works, right? And you get credit for it that way. Maybe that's what was going on here. We're not told. But what we do know is that somebody took it upon themselves to ask Jesus this question about why it was he just kind of didn't fit into the way things should work. And, and here's, what I want, here's what I want you to get today. As we, as we look through not only this passage that we just read, but then the rest of what we're going to read together, I want you to kind of hone in on one thing today. I want you to see what Jesus is really like. Right? Beyond the caricature of Jesus that we, we so often paint for the world and for ourselves, I want you to notice what he's really like. Because, because if you and I were to try to develop our idea today of what Jesus was really like, just by observing the average Christian or the average church, we, we would not conclude that Jesus is anything like what we see in this passage today. In fact, you would probably conclude quite the opposite. You would probably conclude that Jesus foremost 
is concerned really with just making sure he never offends anybody. That above all else, he just does everything he can possibly do to make sure he never steps on anybody's toes. Right? Because that's, that's sort of how things are moving when it comes to modern religion. Right? No matter what you call it, no matter what particular label it is, the, the winds of, of cultural religion blow in that direction. That above all else, you have to make sure you never offend anybody with what you believe. But, but what I want you to notice here is while Jesus loves people more than anyone else in this room ever could, he, he never compromises his own beliefs and convictions. You'll never see him doing it. In, in fact, let's, let's, let's get a good look at Jesus. Start again in, in verse 19. I want you to notice how he answers this question. He could have just said, oh, you know, that's right, today is fasting day. Uh, Peter, let's put away your lunch. He, he could have done that. But Jesus doesn't do that. Look at what he does. In verse 19, Jesus said to them, can, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? I mean, if you show up to a wedding and everybody's just sitting there fasting and looking solemn, what, what would you think? I don't know about your wedding, but that's just not how it was at my wedding. I mean, people were having a great time dancing, jumping around. I mean, it was eating, lots of eating. Fasting was about the last thing on our mind, Right? Even the bride and groom ate, and that's, that's a challenge sometimes at weddings because you're, you're always shaking people's hands and, and greeting people. But even we ate. See, people don't, you don't go to a wedding to fast. No, you go to feast, right? And what Jesus was saying here is you don't, you don't understand. There's a longing that has been fulfilled here. There's a relationship that my disciples are experiencing that calls for a feast rather than this solemn fast that you guys are all about. Yeah, it's interesting, you come into a place like this, and a lot of times people, it, it's got to be really heavy and solemn. You dare not smile, right? Look at you, you guys, you were supposed to smile, that was your cue, but see, so you didn't catch that one. You dare not smile in here, this is serious business. And of course, nothing could be more serious, right? We're talking about the eternal Word of God and His purposes, but at the same time, there's a joy that should mark the life of the Christian. There's a There's a joy that Jesus likens here to the kind of joy you see at weddings, that that's just the reality of our lives. And that doesn't mean that we never have anything in the bad or the sad column. It just means that we don't choose to believe that, that our lives are, are nothing more than like a rerun of the evening news where all you see are the worst things. That, that's, that's just not really the Christian's perspective on life, no matter how bad certain things get. There's a joy that marks our lives as Christians. That's all Jesus is saying. And, and, and he says there's going to be a time for them to fast because the bridegroom at some point, speaking of himself, will be taken away from them. In that day they will fast. And what was going on here, again, the Jews should have been able to recognize this. If my understanding is correct, the only day of the year where fasting was actually required or commanded was on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. You can read that in Leviticus 16, 23, 16 and chapter 23 as well in Leviticus, but you, you can check that out for yourselves, the Day of Atonement. Now, there were other days of fasting that were, that were prescribed during certain festivals and that kind of a thing, but in terms of a requirement, it really wasn't anything like what the Pharisees and the scribes had made it out to be. They got to the point where they, they were requiring people to fast twice a week, now, you talk about a religion I would probably try to avoid when I was, when I was trying to figure out religions, right? Fasting twice a week. Now, 
Now, that's not, of course, too stringent if that's what God requires, but hear, hear me here. Twice a week, if you want God to really approve of what you're doing, you have to fast this way. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, verse 12, you, you'll see a guy praying this way, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week. And Jesus just came and said, you know, it, it, it's, we're always making this thing so difficult. And he, he just said, look, I wanna, let, me, let me teach you something. And then he looks, he does this Jesus thing. It, it sounds like he's not even talking about the same thing anymore. You know how Jesus does that? Have you all read the Gospels? He just starts talking about sowing and, and storing wine, right? Like, like, what does that have to do with anything that we're talking about? But you'll see in a minute. Look, look at verse 21. He, he starts saying this, No one sews a piece of new or unshrunk cloth on an old garment, because if he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the, a, a worse tear is made. And then he goes on to talk about wine. He says, you, you don't do this either. You don't put new wine into old wineskins. And, and here's what Jesus is saying. If you've, if you've ever bought clothes, especially things made from cotton, then you, you understand this, right? You wash that thing. If it's not pre-shrunk, what happens? Yes, yeah, I told the first service, your, your medium very quickly becomes a smedium, right? You, you kinda, you've seen that. You understand how that happens, right? Well, Jesus, that's what he's saying here. You, if, you've got, if you've got this piece of cloth that's new and it's unshrunk, then when you wash that thing, if you've used that to mend this old garment, then it's going to shrink, and as it does, it's going to pull away from the seams and make the tear worse. And it works the same way, he says, with wine storage. They used to store wine and animal skins in that day, and so if the skins were new, they would still have a certain amount of elasticity to it so that they would be flexible enough to, to bend with whatever happened. And the reason you would only put new wine into those newer wine skins was because the new wine had still not completely fermented. So it was still undergoing that whole process, and as it did, here's where my, my chemistry education comes in, right? As it did... That gas would be released, it would increase the pressure on the inside of the skin, and if there wasn't enough elasticity, the skin would crack and break, and what would happen is that thing would be destroyed, and the wine would run out as well. And so what Jesus was trying to say here is, look, look, I want you to, to be very clear about something right up front. I don't fit in to what you're expecting because I didn't come here to fit in. I'm not, I'm not here to fit into some old religious garment like a patch. I'm not here to fit neatly into conventional or popular religion and, and the customs thereof. I'm not here. You certainly, you certainly can't just add me to what you've already got. That's not why I'm here. Nor, nor can these religious structures contain what I'm bringing to the world. No, this is, this is new. This is alive. This is the kingdom of God. It's a new day on the planet. There's something going on now that has never happened before. The king of the very kingdom of God is here, and Jesus said, here's how this works. I'm not here to fit into anything you have. This is my kingdom. You fit into what I'm doing, or you remain outside. And that's the kind of authority that Jesus came with. Listen, folks, it's very important for us to understand this today. That has not changed. Everyone expects the Christian today to simply play ball or go along with the status quo. Or the, here's, here's what religion, conventional religion says. Here's how religion has evolved. Here's what you should think and believe now. But you see, the, the, the culture has never set the agenda for Christ. 
say that again. Jesus is not here to conform to the culture, whether you're talking about the culture as we would define that religiously or secularly. Jesus never takes his cues from the culture. And sadly, what we're finding is that a, a large number of us as Jesus' followers are beginning to do just that. Whereas he sends us into the world to be more like thermostats that regulate temperature and climate, we're more like thermometers. We just kind of feel around for what's going on and, and react to what we sense around us. But that's never how Jesus intended for it to be. In fact, what, you, what you'll find is this. Jesus makes it very clear that he's not meant to be fit in to what any other religious group is doing. And you never see that displayed more clearly than in Jesus' approach to the Sabbath. There was such a difference in how he approached the Sabbath when you compared him to the Jews of his day. And, and Jesus is actually not changing anything. He's simply enjoying the Sabbath as God originally designed it to be enjoyed. The problem was is that the the Jews of his day had started to confuse their own man-made traditions and religion for what God had originally given as a blessing. So we're going to pick up here now in verse 20, or rather verse 23 of, of chapter 2 in Mark here, and we're going to see Jesus on two separate occasions on the Sabbath. And don't miss this, he is intentionally doing what he's doing on the Sabbath to raise an issue. He came to set people free from spiritual bondage and the oppression of man-made religion. And so in order to do that, he's confronting the powers that are keeping people in bondage. And so here he is in verse 23. Let's follow along. Now one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now the question the Pharisees ask here presupposes that what they are doing on the Sabbath is not lawful. Would you agree? Now, is that the case? Are they actually doing something which is contrary to what God allows? Well, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. Jesus would have been well aware of this verse because he was very well acquainted with the Word of God. And when you are... Listen, Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. There's a direct link between the amount of truth we embrace and the amount of freedom we enjoy. And Jesus, Jesus goes in, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, and he says this. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain... You may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Now, has anyone put a sickle to the standing grain in this story? Rather, they're just plucking it with their hand as God permits, correct? So they haven't actually sinned. They're not doing anything wrong. The disciples are simply violating the traditions of those who are present, and that's what they have a problem with. And Jesus has a great opportunity here again to say, you know what? Whew, it's a good thing. Thank you for that reminder. My purpose in this world is to make sure that I never offend anybody. So thank you so much for alerting me to the fact that what we are doing offends your traditions. I will now instruct my disciples to stop this picking of grain immediately. Is that what Jesus does? 
All right, watch what he does. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, have you never read your Bibles? This is, I mean, look, look. This is, all right, this is really important. This is really important because Jesus, you, you I mean, he's, he's sarcastic here, right? Which a lot of people say, if you're a Christian, you can't ever do that. And I'm not encouraging you to do that, but what I want you to do is I want you to notice something. Jesus is not yielding an inch here to this false religion. He's protecting his disciples from believing that this is something God requires of them. And he's teaching them how to go back to the Word of God for themselves. That's what we have to do. And so he he takes them back and he says, have you never read how David did this? There's biblical precedent. When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and how he ate the bread of the presence which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and how he also gave it to those who were with him and then Jesus said this to them that the Sabbath was made for man not the other way around not man for the Sabbath so the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath he he looks at them and says you guys are treating this day as if You were made for it, as if somehow you're supposed to spend all of your time figuring out whether or not you're doing it correctly. The Sabbath was made for man. It was given to you as a blessing, not as a burden. Don't we we so often take those things God gives us as blessings and just turn them into burdens? Things he gives us for our life, our spiritual growth, and then we just find a way to make it into another chore and another burden. Now, one example of that is, is what we do often here with, uh, any, you know what, any program of the church or any aspect of the church's life. For instance, if, if, we, if we set up these little groups that, that meet throughout the week in homes and, and in other parts of the city, and we, we try to form these groups to encourage people to really get to know one another and to, to develop relationships that will foster their spiritual growth and spur them on toward love and good deeds together. If we set these things up like so many other churches, and all of a sudden, in, instead of it remaining something that we receive as a, as a blessing, something that was made for us so that we might be blessed and we might be growing and we might bless others, we just turn it into a burden. Oh, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got I've to go to this group, and I've got to go to this one, and I've got to do that. And I've got I've to, I mean, just by the time you look at it, you, you almost can't even spend any time with your family. Or, I mean, it's just, it's just you, you look at it, and it was never supposed to be that way. Does that make sense? So, yes, do it, but with the right frame of heart. It's a blessing. It was made for you. It was made for you to enjoy, not to... Not to turn into a burden. And so that's what false religion tends to do. And Jesus is trying to confront and correct that. He says, I'm not here to turn everything God gave you as a blessing into a burden for you. And you shouldn't be doing that to other people. If you read Matthew chapter 23, verses 3 through 5, Jesus really takes the Pharisees on here. And he says, woe to you, you blind guides and hypocrites. You, you tie these heavy burdens on people and won't lift a finger to help them. Your entire religion is, is only meant for other people to see. And that's never what Jesus was about. It, it was always about the heart. And so you, you see him bringing that out here as he speaks to these people about the Sabbath. 
Let's continue. Let's actually look down in chapter 3, verse 1 now. As Jesus goes on, there's another, another time where he, on a Sabbath, does something that, again, again, offends a few people, but you notice Jesus is not deterred because, again, that's not how he determines what it is he's going to do. Verse, verse 1, again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. To me, verse 2 is so interesting because here it is, Jesus already has a reputation for healing people. And so now people see a deformity in this person, they see an occasion for healing, and they see Jesus there, and they already expect, you know what? I bet you he's going to try to heal this person. No, do you think he would really do that on the Sabbath? Bet. And sure enough, Jesus picks up on this, this whole thought process in, in, in people's hearts. And, and, and here it is. Look at what he does in verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Can, can you imagine if you were that guy? Now think about this. Look, look around you. Look at, look at the room. Look at how many people are here. Can you imagine if... If I notice something about you that we could call a deformity and I, I just kind of, why don't you, hey, come here. Stand in front of everybody. I mean, how would you feel? That's what's happening here. Right? Real people, real lives. I mean, this, this is, if you're this person with this hand, this is the last thing you want to do. I probably would have just run out this person actually obeys and comes to Jesus, right? So look, Jesus says, come here in verse 4, and then he looks at everyone else. And he, he says to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. Now, what you want to notice here is that this silence is not because they don't know the correct answer. They're silent because they don't like the correct answer. You see, the correct answer shows that their brand of religion is incorrect. And again, Jesus is not making anything up. He's, he's simply going back to Isaiah chapter 58, where he speaks about the kind of fast that God enjoys and that God wants to see in, in the world. Now, let me, let me take you there very quickly. Isaiah chapter 58. Chapter 58. Starting in verse 3, the people are, are, in a sense, crying out to God and complaining, saying, why? why have we fasted and you don't even see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no notice of it? And then God responds. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is that the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Rather, is not this the fast that I choose? 
to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Healing on the Sabbath. That's all Jesus said. That's all. Just, just healing. Doing good. Nothing new. Just peeling back the layers of false man-made religion. That, that's all. By this time, if you, if you pick up a book written by a guy named Alfred Edersheim, it's, it's called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. Alfred Edersheim writes in, in his volume there in appendix number 17, there are 39 different things that you are absolutely forbidden at this time to do on the Sabbath. And lo and behold, one of them, when you remember the disciples going through the grain, that was one of those things. Apparently, even though God's word said you could pluck those heads of grain as long as you didn't put a sickle to it, the, the scribes and the Pharisees had picked it up and they said, no, plucking heads of grain amounts to reaping and reaping is forbidden. That was one of the 39. Furthermore, if you read Luke's account, it says that they rubbed these grain in their hands, right? And so they said, well, that's the same as threshing. You can't do that. That was one of the 39 as well. And then if you tried to blow the chaff away, that was winnowing. So you couldn't do that, right? There's three strikes. And then to make it all worse, they said, you add all up those things together and then, then that's, that's equal to meal preparation. So, so you remember, plucking grain all of a sudden is meal preparation. Right, but see, that's what happens, right? When you, when you start introducing new rules just to keep people from breaking the ones that God actually gave us, all of a sudden you end up way out in left field in some strange world of religion that God can't recognize, and you start beating yourself up with all these burdens when it's, look, it's not supposed to be that difficult. It just isn't supposed to be that difficult. I mean, why make this thing harder than it needs to be? It's already hard. I mean, have you ever read the Bible and tried to obey what God tells you to, to do? Just, just start with what God says. Have you ever tried? It, it is impossible for sinful people like us to do that. Not impossible to obey, but it's impossible to be perfect in our obedience. God is not putting that burden on you. Does he ask for your best and your sincere effort to hear him and to obey? Absolutely. Make every sincere effort to honor and obey the Lord as you understand everything that he says to you. But he doesn't, he doesn't put the burden of perfection in that pursuit on you. He sent his son. He sent Jesus to do that. Jesus was going to carry that burden for us. This is why Jesus got so angry. Look, look at the text again. Verse, verse 4, they were silent. I wish I had more time just to speak on the silence of the church and, and how it leads to what we see here. Verse 5, Jesus looked around at them with anger. He was so angry at this false religion and how it kept people bound. He was so angry because it got in the way of the kind of thing that he was about to do. Healing somebody who had a need. God cares about that. 
and this religion is getting in the way. I, I, I want to heal this person. Is that wrong? We want to save life on the Sabbath. Is that wrong? Well, they wouldn't have disagreed with that. They thought it was okay. If you're, if you're saving a life, then that's fine. But for something like a withered hand, they were ready to crucify him. And if you think that's an overstatement, wait till we get to verse 6. Jesus understands what's happening. He brings the man up front and he, he looks at all of them with anger. He's grieved at the hardness of their heart. And then he says to the man, the unthinkable. And I'm sure, I'm sure this guy knew this was coming. Think about how hard he had tried to hide this defect. And Jesus looks at him and says, stretch out your hand. This, what an embarrassing moment this must have been shaping up to be. His worst fear. But this guy has a track record of obeying Jesus when I would have run in the opposite direction. So here he is again. He stretches out his hand. And lo and behold, his hand was restored. Now you would think after such a great miracle, anyone who witnessed this would be convinced, right? If there were any atheists in the room, they would automatically believe in God. If there were any doubters concerning Jesus' ministry, they would now believe that he was from God. Because that's all it takes, right? All it takes is a miracle to convince people that what we're saying is the truth. Well, if, you just, if an angel were to come down from heaven and, and do this, or if God would show up and do this miracle, then I would believe him. No, you would not. And Jesus took care of that as well in Luke chapter 16. You remember that story about the, the rich man and Lazarus when they both died? And then finally the rich man was, was in torment and he said, he said, Jesus, please send Lazarus back to my father's house. Warn them not to come to this place where I am in torment. And, and, and Abraham, actually it was Abraham, said to him, said, look, no, we're not going to do that. That can't happen. But they have Abraham. They have Moses and the prophets, Abraham said. They have the Bible. And, and Jesus makes the most profound statement in his story. Abraham looks at the guy who's in torment in hell and he says, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, the scriptures, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead. There, there is no miracle great enough that if someone should see it, it would remove all doubt. It, that miracle doesn't exist. They'll just find a way to explain it and rationalize it. it look, look at me. If you will not believe God's word this morning, there's no hope for you. If you will not believe God's word about Jesus, there is no hope of salvation or forgiveness for you. Nothing will satisfy your curiosity or your doubt. I pray to God you would believe God's word. See, Jesus is pointing this out. Look, look, look here at verse 6. Here's how people responded. Quite from starting to, to accept him as, as authentic here, the Pharisees went out immediately, despite having seen what they just saw, and they held counsel with the Herodians. Now, I don't have time to explain that, but let's just say that those are the ruling political powers within that sphere. And so you have all the ruling religious and political powers coming together to conspire against Jesus to figure out how they might destroy him and kill him. And eventually that's exactly what would happen. 
not simply because it was their agenda, but because as Isaiah 53.10 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But there it is, eventually, somehow what Jesus was doing earned him a death sentence. And do you know why? He was starting to take away from their power and credibility. And that was the one thing that people would not suffer. Those in power do not like to have their credibility undermined or their power diminished. And Jesus was quickly establishing himself as the authority, the one to listen to. He came as a king. He became a threat to the Herodians. And they wanted nothing more than to get rid of him and to make him disappear. And for about three days, they would enjoy the fact that they had accomplished that very thing. But then here he was again. Right? Here he was again. He just won't go away. Here's Jesus again. It's the same today, folks. Jesus is not going away. It doesn't matter what the religion of the day tries to do with him, how we try to squeeze him into our old traditions. It doesn't matter how we try to simply add him on as a patch to the religion that we have chosen. Jesus is not going away. You could try to get rid of him. You could explain him away. You could do whatever you want. He's not going anywhere and he's not changing for any of us. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. And yet, here's the thing, as unyielding as Jesus is when it comes to his convictions, what he believes, and what he is determined to do in the world, no one is more caring. He absolutely hates and gets angry at those things which get in the way of people being blessed through a right relationship with him. That sort of religion that does that was his most famous target. We, we have to be so careful when we persist in ignorance concerning God's word and we just start depending upon the traditions that our own church has handed to us. You're always one or two steps away from a very dangerous form of religion if you've not already arrived there. Look, how, well, how, how familiar are you personally with God's word? You personally. What a gift you've been given. Most of you in the room, I'm assuming, what a gift you've been given to even be able to read. So many across the globe can't do that. You and I have such a privilege and such an ability and what, what a responsibility, I believe, to make the most of that gift and to read what God has revealed about himself in his word that we might have that knowledge ready and available not only for ourselves but others for their protection, their blessing and joy. That's what God is about here. He's, he's after our joy and His glory. And, and that depends upon us knowing the truth and walking in it and holding firm in it. I'll leave you with this. The last thing that God really put on my heart as I was, as I was praying and going through this passage was this guy again with this withered hand. Again, I just can't even imagine what he was thinking at the moment. But I imagine it's, it's not too difficult from, or too different rather from what some of us might be thinking right now or what some of us are about to feel. I got the sense as I was reading this part of the passage that, that that's what we often do, many of us. We have the equivalent of, of some deformed hand, something that we just do our best to hide from everybody else. The thing that we're so afraid people will discover We're so afraid of what they'll think. 
We're probably afraid that we'll be ostracized and put away if the truth about us is known. Um, but that, that's not how it works with Jesus. That's not how it works with Jesus. He didn't tell this guy to stretch out his hand so that he could mock him or make an example of him in a bad sense. He was saying to him, look, trust me here, stretch out your hand. And wouldn't you know it that in the process of exposing perhaps what he feared the most being exposed, he was healed. I I don't know what it is for you this morning, but it's afternoon by now. But if you have something like that that you're hiding from everyone, perhaps you think you're even hiding this from God, that may be the very thing in between you and the healing of your soul. Would you take a chance this morning and not run the other way, but do what this man did? Would you stretch out your hand? Stretch out your hand. Trust Jesus and see if he won't heal you of what you fear. Let me pray for us real quick. Lord, I trust that your word and your spirit are powerful to accomplish your purpose and the reason for which you gathered all of us here this morning. Let your word sink into our hearts. Let us be changed according to your desire. Help us to receive your grace this morning. I just pray that as we see you standing before us, we would not fear or be intimidated but we would see the opportunity for us to stretch out our hand to receive you by faith because you stretched out your hands for us on the cross and were raised and was raised from the dead. Lord, we we ask now that you would seal all the things that we have heard this morning in our hearts and let them bear fruit for you and for your kingdom. And we ask that in your name. And everybody said, Amen.